welcome to the Infertile Mafia. That's Sarah. And that's Kayla today. We have a real treat for you guys today. I had the privilege of interviewing Regina Townsend. She is the founder of The Broken Brown Egg, which is a popular fertility blog, um, website, resource. I'll link it all in the show notes. Um, and we got to talk about like a lot of different things. Um, for one, it took her, Sarah, I know you're um, going to be sympathetic to this, but it took her years to get a diagnosis of PCOS and blocked tubes. Wow. And um, then they also had like some male factor stuff going on. They went through um, a disrupted adoption and fostering. She's been through a lot. And so she's going to, she talks about that a little bit. Um, but then we also really get into like, um, her experience with doctors who were just like really dismissive of her and didn't believe her and then how it really changed her whole trajectory when she really got some empathetic care from some doctors. Um, so I think it's a, it's a great, I mean, we talked about a lot of things, the importance of self-advocacy, mental health. That was a big thing we talked about, um, both like during fertility treatments and then postpartum, Um, and of course she like shares her experience as a black woman and, you know, just people of color in the infertility community. So there's a lot there. It's a lot of really good information. I'm excited to hear. I just wanted first to, you know, say thank you for talk, you know, for coming on and talking with us. And, um, I know it's kind of been a long time in the making. Like we've kind, we kind of knew each other. We're acquainted back in the YouTube days, <laughs> but I'm so happy to, to speak to you personally. Yeah. So thank likewise, you. Likewise. I, I've told you a few times, but your videos helped me a lot when we were going through IVF. And so, um, I followed everything from there. And also just the fact that you were like in Chicago and teaching kids and I'm a kid's librarian. And so I was just like, all of these things are so similar. Um, and so my husband and I, we watched your videos to figure out how to do the, the progesterone and oil shot. <laughs> but then I just kept watching because I was just like, I just really enjoy watching Kayla. She has a positive attitude. <laughs> Oh, thank you. And I'm obsessed with Chicago Victorians. So when you got your house, I was just like, oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) The house is pretty extra. It is. (laughs) So I know your personal story of infertility, but if you're not familiar with Regina and the Broken Brown Egg, you can learn about her story on her blog and social media. I'll link all of that in the show notes. Um, as well as a number of podcasts that you've been on. I recommend um, the interview you did with Monique on Infertility yeah. and Me. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. It was an excellent uh, conversation interview that you did with her. Um, so I wanted to give my listeners just a, before I ask you some questions, kind of a quick overview of your history, and you jump in and correct me if anything you know, you want to add anything to it, but it seemed like it, in short, you realized you were having kind of a hard time conceiving when you, when you realized that you, um, struggled to be heard and to be taken yeah. seriously by a number of doctors. 
And as a result, it, it took a while before you were finally listened to and eventually diagnosed with PCOS, blocked fallopian tubes. Um, I know you mentioned some male factor infertility in yeah. there. All of these things, you went through a, a potential adoption with a family member and fostering before eventually doing IVF. And you now have a four-year-old son. You've been mm-hmm. through a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you go through, you don't think, you don't, you know that you're going through a lot, but you just kind of go to the next step. You're like, okay, well, what's the next thing? Right. And then you do the next thing, and then you do the next thing. And then after all of that, then you go, oh, that was, damn, that was a lot of stuff. <laughs> so yeah. in the middle of it, like even with those first doctors, it wasn't until like years later that I was like, oh, if they had done different tests at the beginning, things might have changed. You know, like in the moment, you just, you don't know what you don't know. And so right. it, it's, it's been a tremendous um, learning experience. I try to look at it as, but in the middle of it, it was just so frustrating and isolating. And um, to have doctors dismiss you and then not have any representation, and it was just, it made you feel so alone and ashamed really. Like, okay, it must be something really, really wrong with me because doctors don't treat people like this. and. I don't see any other black people dealing with this. So it must, it must really be me. So it really started to affect my self-esteem. It started to affect my mental health. It was just a lot. It was a a lot. lot. Yeah. I read, um, something on your, um, your, your blog on your website that said, uh, you know, one of the reasons you did this, um, was because you didn't see representation you didn't see yourself in these white spaces um, that are largely like marketed toward white women. I'm talking about infertil- the infertility community, um, you know, women in blogs, even the doctors themselves, all the pictures of the babies on the, on the, you know, on the, the board at the fertility clinic. And um, when you don't see yourself, that creates even further isolation in that space. And you mm-hmm. wrote, you know, I believe we can combat these issues by increasing representation, information, education, and discussion. Infertility is lonely enough enough without feeling like a minority inside of a minority. Can you talk to me about why representation is so important for these? I think in these spaces, it's the, the biggest thing is because it it gives the um, it gives an unfair look into what infertility is in that it leaves out other people that are affected by it. So when someone is, that contributes to this belief that there must be something really wrong with me because no one in my family has talked about this. I don't see any ads advertised towards us. In fact, I only hear ads about hysterectomy and fibroids. That's the only thing I know about, but I don't put two and two together and think of infertility when I hear those things. So I don't know that this is something affecting us. I just know something's wrong with me and I should, I should keep it to myself. When people don't see themselves represented, they're not sure that they're welcome. Right. They start to feel like there's nothing for me here. This is out of my price range. This is out of my depth. This is unattainable for me. Um, and I think it also boosts your esteem when you feel like, I'm a part of this community. When you're starting to look and you don't see anybody that looks like you, that part of your self-esteem and self-worth just takes such a massive, massive hit. 
So I feel like representation helps to stop reinforcing the idea that we don't need these treatments. And it stops giving people this idea that there's something to be ashamed of about it. Um, because there isn't. This is a part of your body that's not doing what it was supposedly designed to do. You can get help for that and not feel like, I caused this. This is because of something I did. This is because of who I am. Um, because there are a lot of people suffering in silence who really feel like that because they don't know anybody else, Black, Hispanic, or Asian, who have dealt with fertility issues at all. And that is not the case. There's a lot of us dealing with it. We're just not talking about it. So the more we are represent, represented in the clinics, but also in the advocacy in the you know imagery that we use in the terminology that we use in the marketing that opens the door for people to feel less ashamed it opens the door for people to start talking amongst their friends and family um and even having more honest conversations with their partners because i know a lot of people who felt like they were going to have trouble before they got married but they never had the conversation because they were already embarrassed by it or already feeling this weight of it. And so I feel like it will open the door for a whole lot more conversation. I, I love what you're saying about um, if when you don't see yourself, you don't feel part like you're welcome. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wonder if that absolutely has to do with the statistic that, you know, black women ha- suffer from infertility at twice the rate from of white women. And yet you're twice as likely to not see a doctor mm-hmm. and um what a tragedy that it would be something as simple as you know <laughs> not feeling welcome up. in that space you know yeah 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 um, feeling like you can't even call feeling like yeah. you know it's marketed as and it's and, i mean it affects black women in terms of our our thought process but i'm sure it affects lower income white women too. This idea that IVF is unattainable unless you're a rich white woman. And that's false. And so a lot of people don't even investigate because they've already kind of gotten the messaging Mm -hmm. that that's not for me. I'm not welcome there. That's for rich people who want designer babies or whatever. And they're not being really informed about like, I didn't even know what what is a reproductive endocrinologist. I didn't know what PCOS was. Like these are health issues. But you don't know it because the, it feels like that world is closed off to mm-hmm. you. And, and the irony is I get people who follow the Broken Brown Egg on like Instagram or they find the site and they'll send me messages and they'll say like, hi, Regina, I just really love your site. I'm a white woman and I don't know if it's okay for me to follow, but I just wanted to say that I really love to follow. And I'm always like, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> this is all, this sucks for all of us. Right. Um, but the, I think the last couple of times that I got one of those messages, I finally posted something that was like a light bulb moment was like, this is how we feel. Mm-hmm. When you come to my site and you feel like, well, she's talking specifically about black people. So maybe I don't belong here. That's how we feel when we go to the regular doctor. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we feel when we go to the, any neighborhood. That's how we feel when we're, you know experiencing something where we were not sure if that was a microaggression, but maybe it was, that's how we feel all the time. So I've tried to use that as an, as an illustration for people of why, when I get that question of like, well, why did, why do you have to have something for black women or why does it have to be this? And it's like, 
because of that, we feel like, well, do I even belong here? Because I don't see anybody. Right. That looks like I don't know me. if I'm supposed to be here. So I don't know. Should I? <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my hands. Like, there's that feeling. So it really is an illustration of why, you know, when you don't feel welcome, it will block you from pursuing treatment. It'll block you from looking for support. You just kind of suffer alone longer than you really need to because mm-hmm. you just don't know. And it really invalidates just your self-worth to be, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if we're just going to get right down to the core of yeah. it, it's like, you know. Exactly um, that. So you can go follow Regina at the Broken Brown Egg. Like, it's okay. Yeah. It is okay. It is okay. Come hang out. It's equal opportunity. I'm just providing representation, but it is really, it sucks for all of us. Right, right, it's right. It's stupid for all of us. We all hate it. So true. Nobody yeah. wants to be here. Nobody no. wants to be here. But once no. you get here, there's great people. Right. And then you have that shared experience and that, and then you're kind of looking at each other like, damn, I'm sorry you're here too. Yeah. I don't want to be here either. <laughs> but to be honest, like I've made some, I mean, I've met some of the best women I know. The most amazing yeah. people. The yeah. most amazing kind of do what I need to do, but also yeah. empathetic and compassionate people yeah. that are willing to help each other and give as much information and, It makes you really grateful, and that's what makes me so so much hated because it's like, I hate that I have to thank infertility for anything, but it has has introduced me to some wonderful people. It's made me extremely compassionate and patient about things um, that in the moment, I didn't feel like I was learning patience. I was just miserable, but in the aftermath, I'm like, wow, I must have been really patient to deal with all that crap. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> you don't see it that way in the moment. You're like, this is. And help crap. open your mind to the, just, I don't know, just the idea of like collective suffering among other people. And yes. just like, you know, it, you know what I mean? It's just, there's always, you never know what's going on with someone. You never know. Yeah. That's the biggest thing that I've taken away from infertility is even with my job, when I go in, I mean, I'm a public librarian, so we see people of all walks of life anyway. But I've just really started to even hone in on my coworkers of like, I have no idea what all everyone is dealing with when they're not here. So I try to take that into every environment that I'm in. And that's like, I don't know what other people are going through because they didn't know that I was driving to Skokie at seven o'clock in the morning and then back <laughs> to Forest Park or Oak Park or wherever. Like they didn't know that either. So there's no way for me to know what other people are going through. And I try to be more compassionate because I... I think that way now, mm-hmm. whereas I'm not sure that I always thought that, I mean, I've, I've been empathetic and sympathetic to people, but I don't know if this level of like, these people could be going through anything. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to judge them harshly for pretty much, right. you know, with the exception of full out <laughs> hatred and racism. I, I don't right. judge. <laughs> Especially because it's such a hidden you know, people don't wear that out openly. Usually they're not wearing like a shirt that says I'm infertile or, you know, mm-hmm. I had a miscarriage or something. So yeah. you just never know. So that's a that's a really good point. In fact, I wanted to ask you about, um, I mean, I've, I, I know one of your, your big things that you talk about is being an advocate for yourself. I know that's a, that you're big on, on uh, self-advocacy and yeah. the importance of, empathetic and compassionate care. 
So it's, and, and I oh. know that like really things changed for you when you found a doctor that had really empathetic and compassionate care. Everything. Tell me about it. <laughs> it changed everything because prior to that, I had had doctors that were really dismissive. So like before I found out about the PCOS, I would be bleeding for weeks on end and go to the doctor or go to the ER sometimes. And it would just be like, well, if you lose weight, then you won't have periods like that. Or here's some birth control pills and that'll solve it. Or, you know what, it's your thyroid. So here's your thyroid medication and just do that. No explanation of what your thyroid does, what these pills should do, even instructions on how to take them properly. Um, and I was just always kind of dismissed, kind of shuffled along. Let's get you out of here. And then when I was looking for, you know, fertility feeling. help and I went to the doctor, she was like, well, here's a, here's a prescription for Clomid. And she just gave me a prescription. She didn't explain Clomid. She didn't do any kind of like, let's find out if you ovulate. Let's find, like, she didn't do any of that. She just gave me a prescription. And when I came back- No tests and it, at all. Nothing, nothing. Yeah. When I came back, she didn't do anything. She was like, well, are you pregnant? Like, <laughs> no, obviously. And she said, oh, okay, well, here's metformin. Same thing. She just wrote the prescription and she was like, in and out of that room so fast. She wrote the and prescription and you had the runs for the next time. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. It actually, it's set to be honest, that prescription sat on my counter for like two weeks because everybody that I know that had taken it was like, you're gonna be in the bathroom so much. And I was like, I work in a school. I cannot yeah. be like, wait kids. Right. Here's a book, read it, I'll be right. Like I was so nervous about it. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I finally, left that doctor's office and started looking into um, PCOS, it was another doctor who, who had read my blog and took me to, to lunch, him and his wife, and he's the one who said, you should ask your doctor about PCOS. And when I went and I asked her and she was just like, it's not that, you don't have any cysts, it can't be that. So just lose the weight and let's get your thyroid under control. And you know, everybody's got Google and they think they're doctors and that's not what it is. It's there, you don't have any cysts. We didn't see any cysts. Cause she had actually finally done some kind of ultrasound when I look back um, and she was like, well, there's no cysts. And I'm thinking in my head, like, well, a, an actual doctor told me to add, okay. <laughs> and I left and I was so like, just, kind of dejected like with all of those experiences I would I would leave and sit in my car for like 10 minutes after and just feel like nobody wants nobody can help me and worse than that nobody wants to help me they just feel like I'm just another person that's coming who they just are going to run the same script to and I'm not worthy of any kind of personal care any kind of personal attention so I thought it was going to get better when I had insurance and had a doctor who I was was actually going to be able to see consistently and it, I'm learning that it's not going to change. Um, and then when I had to go back, I called and she wasn't available and I asked to see if I asked if I could see somebody else. And when I went to see that doctor, I, I kind of tested her out by saying, you know, I think it might be PCOS. And she was like, I think, I think so too. If you think that, let's look into it. And I told her, you know, what the other doctor had said. And she was like, well, PCOS is a syndrome. It doesn't look the same on everybody. You don't have to have cysts. Right. So let's look into it if that's what you think. 
And that was such a moment of like, you're my best friend forever now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like she's literally, she's been my doctor since then because she was the first person that like was literally who said, you know, your body more than anybody. So if that's what you think, then let's look into that. And that attitude of like, we're in this together. together. We're a team. Like that meant the world to me and helped me to feel motivated about the whole experience. And she's who finally did testing that showed that my tubes were blocked and were never going to be. <laughs> Clomid was never going to work. Metformin right. was never going to work. Yeah. If somebody had tested me a long time ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> who knows what would have happened? Um, and then even then, like even when we found out my tubes were blocked, she came, she was right there. She had just finished and she walked up to the head of the bed and she was like, Regina, you did everything that you wanted to do. And I know you don't want to do IVF because I was afraid of needles and I was like, I can't do this. And she's like, <laughs> I know you don't want to do IVF, but I think that that's the way you're going to get around all of this. And I'm going to give you a referral. And the same thing happened. Like when I went to the fertility center, the first center I went to was fine. Everyone was nice and it was, it was okay for what I knew of going to a fertility center. Um, but the way that all of the information was given to me and my husband was like, so this is what's wrong and this is what's wrong this is what's wrong and this is how much this costs and this is what this is gonna be oh and if one of you dies who who do you want the embryos to go to and if you get divorced do you want like all of that kind of stuff um and then we were like so sad that it was like we're gonna move forward but it was just kind of it was heavy Mm -hmm. and it was really heavy for him because up until that point, I had been doing all of the heavy lifting medically mm-hmm. and looking things up and calling doctors and going in and out for, um, I had had multiple at that point, um, like, uh, surgeries for cysts and, um, all kind of stuff. So for me, I was like, okay, so this is the next thing. All right, fine. Whatever. Yeah. For him, <laughs> for him, for somebody to say, well, we also have some sperm issues as well. And we have some things that we want to look at with that. And because of your diabetes, we're going to need to look at that. That was the first time that he heard somebody say things aren't working all the way right with you either. Um, And I think it was a wake up call for him of how I had been feeling at all those appointments where someone was constantly telling me something was wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And also it was like, oh gosh, if there's something wrong with me and her, this might never happen. So her demeanor wasn't terrible. She was being very matter of factly. Yeah. (laughs) But she was giving rough information. (laughs) She was like, I've never seen anyone with an AMH as high as yours. Let me just lay that out. It's not how you want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. She was like, they're usually like eight. Yours is a 21. And it was Mm. like, oh, great. (laughs) It's like, then then I overachieve when I'm in the place (laughs) where I'm supposed to be. Great. Um, And then after the disrupted adoption experience and everything, when we got to the clinic, we eventually actually conceived through, she was such a positive. She went over the same chart, but she had such a way of like, oh, we can fix this. This is no problem. Oh, you know what? Let's do this test today. Like it was very positive and encouraging. And I think that that lifted his spirits as well as my spirits because all those years I've been listening to people just kind of like, I don't know, Virginia. I mean, you sure you want to do this? Cause it's not looking good on my end. I don't know what you want to do. And I had just remember always leaving appointments feeling like, 
Yeah. I broke it. Right. <laughs> my mom last we were uh, when I was younger, we would go to Wisconsin Dells every year. And when we would go, we would buy little trinkets and, and everything. And one of the her favorite trinkets was a little fake remote control that was called the mom button. And you would push it and it would be different things that a mom would yell and say. <laughs> and it would be like, put that down, leave it alone. But her favorite button is the last one, which would be like, there, it's broken. Are you happy now? <laughs> and so I would leave those appointments feeling like I was hearing that in my ear. There, it's oh. broken. Are you happy now? Your body's broken. You did it. You ruined it. It's over. <sighs> and that's You've been overweight your whole life. What are you going to do now? Not how you want to feel. <laughs> no, not at all. You can't be motivated you, to do this. This is a lot of work. Be, yeah, you're right. You can't be motivated. I feel like that's what a lot of, and I know doctors don't go to medical school and learn how to be empathetic caregivers. Like that's not what they teach them. But the ones who do go the the little bit of an extra mile to provide that piece, that it doesn't take that much, really. It doesn't, it doesn't take that much really to, to talk to someone like a human person and just offer them care and compassion. And like you said, we're in this together. We're working together. Your voice matters just as much as mine. Um, all of the, like to empower their patient to like take ownership over their fertility, mm -hmm. their decisions, like all the, it doesn't take that much, but it makes such a difference. Huge difference. Yeah. Huge difference emotionally and, and just making you feel like they've got your back and right. that this might move forward. And, or even that if, if things don't go well, I've got your back through that too. Right. I can trust you really. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. That is the main, I just posted that just like yesterday of like, doctors, can we trust you? That's right. what your patients are coming in. They're wondering, right. Can I, can I trust you with my heart? Cause mm -hmm. this is my heart's desire. Can we trust you is a big, big question. Right. And doctors have to earn that. It's not, it should not automatically be given. Um, it should definitely be earned. Right. I want to spend some time talking about the experience of Black people in the infertility community. We've also, on this podcast, we've talked at length about the, just the atrocity, atrocities inflicted on enslaved Black women by, by the man who's heralded as the father of gynecology, right? Marion Sims. Mm -hmm. And... Check him out. <laughs> yeah, check him out. Just do a quick Google if you haven't. Do your Googles. Yeah, use your Googles. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, this is a man who involuntarily sterilized black women, performed countless experiments on them without their consent, perpetuated this, you know, widely abused stereotype that still exists today that black women and men don't feel pain, feel pain the same way that yeah. white people do. Like, I, I don't... That one still just gets me. Um, insane. Insane. But, you know, modern modern day gynecology was built on the backs of these black women. In addition, mm -hmm. we've talked about things like the Tuskegee experiment. And there's so many other examples where the black community has been abused and exploited in this country. And that has created this general generational trauma and lack of trust mm -hmm. just overall. But, you know, in, for our conversation in the medical community, 
um, it, it certainly created that where black people do not trust that they will be believed or heard or treated the same way. Mm-hmm. I want you to talk to me, if you can, about how this trauma of centuries of systemic racism has had a direct effect on black women today in our country who are seeking help with infertility. I think a lot of what you just said was totally, totally it. Um, And I think that there's two sides. There's a valid mistrust um, because of, uh, you know, experimentation, the withholding of medication as in the Tuskegee experiment, the misuse of our bodies, even after death, grave robbing um, for use for dissection and experimentation. Henrietta Lacks being used, you know, without her cells, we wouldn't even have IVF. So a lot of these things are born on the literal bodies of Black people. And that has made fear pervasive. So there's a lot of situations where, you know, things that were considered like old wives' tales started to take root. Mm -hmm. And things that may have started from some genuine concerns, you know, in the Baltimore area, near Johns Hopkins, they were robbing graves and stealing black bodies and dissecting them and doing experimentations on them. And so people would tell each other about the night doctors. They would tell each other, don't don't go out in the dark, don't go out at night, don't go to that hospital, you may not come out. If you go to the hospital for something simple, they're gonna tell you something worse and they're gonna put you to sleep and never let you out. Those things were happening. Well, now you have people who, when they have a health issue, they have family history of not going to the doctor because everybody in their family has been t- telling each other all these things. You don't go to that doctor. Mm-mm, I don't trust what doctors say. You don't know what they're going to do. Don't go there. Don't do this. They just want your money. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that. And then on the flip, when you have the people who do go to the doctor, that pervasive implicit bias that has been taught that we don't experience pain the same way that we, um, are lying, that we are hypersexual, those things make it so that those of us who do go to the doctor are hyperfertile. Yes. <laughs> so when we do go, you know, like even with that first doctor, and she was black, the first doctor that I went to that gave me the Clomid and the stuff, I'm pretty sure because it was the south side of Chicago in a predominantly black environment that she was more used to giving people contraceptive mm. devices and medications. And she just was like, oh, well, what? You trying to get, okay, well, (laughs) let me write you this thing then, girl. Like, I think that that in the medical community is something that we really have to address, that you have to look at people as people. And when it comes to Black women in general, we're looked at as a monolith. We're looked at as we're all the same. We all act the same. We all do the same thing. And that's not the case. So I think even in the same household, that may not be the case. You know, mm-hmm. I dealt with infertility. I dealt with all of these issues. I've looked at things from an academic standpoint. Meanwhile, my baby sister had her first child when she was 16. So we do have different types of experiences and all should be respected. So when we have women that are going and saying, you know, we look at situations like Serena Williams, who's saying, you know, I need this scan. I, I know something's wrong her being who she was, thank goodness that they listened to her and we still have her, but there are countless women who are dying in childbirth because they're not being listened to. So when you have all of those stories, both historical context and current distrust, 
you have black women who are then saying, well, I'm not going to go. I don't, I don't trust that I can be, you know, helped or again, going back to that representation, you don't see anybody like you on the picture. So you're like, Oh, maybe, maybe it's not safe for us here. Maybe right. it's, maybe we're not supposed to go here. If I go here, are they going to treat me the same experiment way? on me mm. to find out what treatments do work? Like those fears are valid. There can be a lot that doctors can do to address it. And I feel like providing representation of those who have gone through fertility treatments, who have gone through adoption, who have gone through kinship care and foster care and all these things, that helps with debunking the, the stigmas and stereotypes that have grown. But that mistrust is absolutely valid. The right now, you know, we have people that are trying to sway people to go get the vaccine. And they're frustrated with those who won't. And I've been trying to remind people that you have to look at the full picture. A community that has constantly seen the medical industry take advantage of them right. does not trust you when you say, hey, here, come get this shot that we just put together. They're, they just don't. So before we, before we rush to judge people for not doing it, let's educate them on why this is different. Because all they're thinking in their head is Henrietta Lacks, Tuskegee Experiment, mm -hmm. uh, Body Snatchers, Grave Diggers, uh, Night Catchers on Slave Plantations, because that was the, that was where the Night Doctor thing came from, is mm -hmm. that they would tell slaves, if you're out, it's also where police came from, but that's a whole other thing. But they would tell... I know yeah. that story. <laughs> it's <laughs> wild. They would tell slaves, it's crazy. Uh -huh. They would tell slaves, if you're out in the dark, when you should be in your cabin those night doctors are going to come get you and they, they're never going to bring your body back. There were little, uh, it's, it's horrendous. There are nursery rhymes that were taught to slaves to tell them to be afraid. So when it comes to getting help for medical issues, we have taught ourselves through generations how to fix it ourselves. Take this, do that, figure this out, pray. We've turned to our faith for a lot of support in those issues. So we also have, you know, where women and, and men are not going to get treatment because they're, they're thinking, well, then my faith isn't strong enough. Hmm. And going to the doctor should be the last resort when really going and getting a test might solve or at least give you an answer right from the jump. But there's a lot that needs to be done to heal that fear and to heal those biases and to look at the systemic things that create them because people don't realize that the clinics that are in certain communities, the way that people are treated, the way that people are addressed um, is completely different. If you go in a different neighborhood, I know for me being a, you know, at the time I lived on the South side. So being on the South side of Chicago, which for those who aren't from Chicago, Chicago is a very segregated city. You drive from neighborhood to neighborhood and you can tell what race lives in which area based on what stores you see, what um, people you see walking around, where you see more people walking because <laughs> yeah. they're more comfortable to walk. You can see that in Chicago. So the clinics that I was going to on the South side, you know, there were a lot of environmental things that are causing people to have higher risk for some of the issues that may cause infertility. So if you're in a food desert and you're not able to eat healthy and you're not able to get what you need, well, now you're overweight or you've developed diabetes or you develop something else. So when you're going to doctors whose implicit bias tells them that they need to 
fix you, not help you, they're first going to tell you lose weight. They're first going to tell you exercise. They're first going to, because they don't believe that you deserve a quality of life that you chose because they think that you chose the quality of life that they see on you. Mm -hmm. So if they see that you're overweight, they think, oh, you're just not taking care of yourself. Not, well, I can't because in the community that I'm in, I can't really go for walks like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's always, it, 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 the blame comes back on the patient. And that is not how medical care should be. You should be caring for me and we should be working together. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's layers. It's, it's layers <laughs> upon layers. It's and layers. I mean, you mentioned how cities like Chicago are segregated and we're not the only ones. And yeah, no. I feel like a lot of people point to that and Again, they're like, well, why do you live there? It's like, well, why don't you just go ahead and, again, yeah. use your Googles <laughs> and understand why we, why our cities are segregated, why, why, the the, why things are the way they are. You know, uh, as a librarian, I can tell you, people run from information. They don't want to learn sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be like, I need y'all to read and look this stuff up so that you understand right. yeah. what's going on. And I think of, um, you know, of things that I've heard people say, like, um, when they say things like 1865, that was a long time ago. They don't even say the year because they don't know. But, yeah. um, like, that was, get over it. They say, get Race over it. We're not a part of it. Yeah, we're not. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. We're not a part of it. And I think what, so, I think what, there's a disconnect with white people with what we're talking about because they don't see that connection. When you think about like the Tuskegee project that we were just talking about and how those stories have been passed down, you know, from, and that wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> the children of the people who were a part of that study are still suffering the consequences of it. Right. Flint still doesn't have clean water. Like right. these are things that are actively happening like right. people talk about these things like it was just like centuries and centuries ago and right. it's like well actually mm -hmm. no like no that's no. not actually it well and I just I wish we could get people to understand that just because it hasn't affected your reality your bubble doesn't mean it's not true doesn't yeah. mean it's not happening <laughs> and it doesn't mean that you're a horrible person for right. not knowing it means that you can be more willing to listen. Mm -hmm. But I think people have a hard time when they feel, I mean, <laughs> people have a hard time when they feel judged mm -hmm. or attacked. And sometimes it's like, ain't nobody coming for you. Nobody was judging you in the first place. Relax. <laughs> right, a relax. Bit. Yeah. It's okay to have these kind of difficult conversations, but I think all of that is trust. Right. We learn to trust each other and trust that I'm not telling you something because I want to like be mean to you. I'm telling you, if something harms me so that you won't harm me right. anymore. I'm not like trying to hurt your feelings. I want you to know so that we can move forward. Right. But the longer that it's like, I tell you what's wrong and then you tell me, well, I didn't do it. Then where are we going to go from there? Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to get very far. I know it's yeah. Anyway, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. <laughs> it is. It is heartbreaking. It's tough. I mean, yeah, we could talk about that. But I'll move on. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'll move on. Um, so another thing that I've heard you talk about, which I love that you 
bring a light to this is the taboo of mental health. Um, not just in the black community, but just in general. Um, although I know that there is a, a kind of going back to what we're talking about there, there is a fear in the black community, maybe of admitting that you need help or that you're not well because it's so stigmatized, um, or it's even dangerous for some people yes. to disclose that. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and why that is? And has been has been for years. The same with, you know, any kind of fault. If we're looking at the connection from where this all starts to now, any kind of fault that was seen in a black person made them in danger. Right. You know, if we go all the way back to slavery, being infertile was considered a sign of unsoundness in black women. And that can get you sold. That can get you um, given harsher work to do that can get you separated from your family that can get your husband put with someone else because if the primary goal is mating and breeding and you're not producing then you don't need him so we're going to move him to someone else all of those things were dangerous so if it comes to mental health anything that makes you unsound once again puts you in danger and so that has been passed down also that concept of we don't tell everybody what's going on with us we don't put our business in the street. You don't tell those people that that's wrong, what's wrong with you. You keep that to yourself. You don't want to be labeled. And some of it still in even recent years in education, like coming from an education background and a family of educators, we've watched how, you know, when it comes to black kids, once they're labeled as a as having any kind of behavioral disorder or any you know that's where mental health disorders were kind of shuffled into they were put in the behavioral disorder class and that label followed them throughout their education and that is something that has made parents of black children afraid to have them tested which has kept some of them from very much needed mental health support there's adults who don't go and find out if they have any kind of mental issues you know, clinically, because they feel like having that on my record could get my kids taken away from me, could cause me to lose my job, someone could use it against me. So that that fear of this could cause me harm or bring harm to my family or bring shame to my family makes us very, very unlikely to talk about things that we deem to be personal or private. So same with infertility when it comes to mental health prey on it uh you're not crazy you're just a little sad <laughs> you know you don't need those pills don't be taking those back to that mistrust of medical mm -hmm. you don't need those pills don't take those pills you don't know what those pills gonna do to you that mentality of we need to fix it ourselves because we can't trust that when they tell us they're fixing us they're not hurting us more is very big and I found that with me, that was keeping me from being helped. Yeah. <laughs> I was really tired of feeling like I needed to be ashamed of things that just weren't working right in my body. I didn't know that postpartum could last three years. I didn't know that I needed, you know, medication. I didn't know that I could have somebody just tell me, Virginia, you're not a basket case for feeling how you feel. I didn't know any of that because I thought, well, strong black woman you're supposed to just pull it together you can't tell people this is going on you can't show weakness you need to make sure that when you go to work you're on your best behavior and you're and you're at the top of your game keep all that sadness to yourself like 
all of those things were killing me. Silence kills. Mm -hmm. And I knew that there were so many people that were in my life who were kind of pushing through the same thing. And I, I felt like, especially in the infertility community, not including mental health as part of the conversation is damaging. Because then when someone goes through infertility, does IVF or adopts or IUI or whatever, and they're sad when they have the baby, mm -hmm. they feel guilty. I did all of this. I put all of this work in. Why am I being ungrateful? You're not ungrateful. You're having a hormonal reaction to a traumatic experience that maybe took about a decade of your life. You're allowed. But when we don't talk about it, people really think, I don't deserve this baby. I caused this. Why did I do this? This was a, I, I made a mistake and they don't just, I don't deserve them. And all that weight when going to talk to somebody who can tell you, no, 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 that's postpartum. Right. And that's pretty normal feelings would help you, even if it's just to let you know you're not crazy. <laughs> um, and I've, yeah. And I've made, I've made mental health, like not even just on the program, right? my regular personal Facebook page. Mm -hmm. I'll just pop up some days and be like, Hey, y'all got a therapist yet? <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Take your mask today. Even right. if you're feeling good. <laughs> like I just put that out there because so many people still feel like they can't, they can't say it. They need to be mm -hmm. silent. They need to suffer. Go to go sit on somebody's couch and let them give you some <laughs> medication if you need it. Yeah. Even if that medication is somebody just writing down, you are allowed to rest. Mm -hmm. You are allowed to say no take a day off of work. Like those are prescriptions too. Yeah, right. <laughs> those are good prescriptions that I enjoy. Uh -huh. Especially that take a day off of work. Right. <laughs> You're so right. That, I mean, the, mental health is, a, is stigmatized like everywhere in society, but I'm glad you brought on again the extra layer in the black community that, yeah. you know, it's kind of like in a white supremacist society or they're just not given the benefit of the doubt about anything mm -hmm. and so there's just that need to always um outwardly project perfection, perfection. yeah or right. at least what is society what is what has society said is acceptable right for you right 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 always got to pristine it up shine it real good mm -hmm. don't use inside words outside like you have to really be <laughs> on all the time yeah. it's exhausting it's, it's so exhausting and that's why i don't do that no more <laughs> good i'm glad you good you shouldn't you shouldn't have to no I'm sorry. you really shouldn't no you really should and i'm glad too that you talked a little bit about your postpartum experience i don't know if you want to expand on that a little bit more but i so sarah and i both have ivf children and in the past we've made a point to not really talk about our children or our postpartum experience on the podcast. Um, but I really think, and we've been talking about this, that I think in a lot of ways, kind of to your point that you were just talking about, I, that has been a disservice because the reality is women who struggle with infertility are three times more likely to suffer yes. from postpartum depression and, and, you know, and or anxiety. So we need to talk about it so that you, A, know you're not alone B, you know, to like look for it and understand that this is a normal thing that may happen. You, the fact that you, you named it, like you've done all this work and then you feel the, this immense weight of, um, I can't complain and I have to do everything perfectly right. And this mm -hmm. hypervigilance comes in, 
um, after you have gone through the trauma of infertility. So I know that's another thing you're really vocal about. Do you want to speak to your personal experience with postpartum and again, why, why you think it's really important for us to talk openly about that? Yeah, I think with me, you know, first of all, and you know this too, because your twins are from 2016 also, but mm-hmm. it was a very rough year. There was a lot going on socially, very similar to right now, right. actually, or at least last year. Um, and I was highly anxious about that. I was highly anxious about having gone through fertility treatments and then brought a child into the world when the world was seemingly going crazy all around me. And I felt guilty and scared and anxious and tired and irritated. Um, And I thought all of that was normal. I thought, well, there is a lot going on. Like just went along with it, Um, but it didn't go away. And it was to a point where, you know, where I work, I'm the teen librarian, I've been there for years. And usually when there's an issue with teenagers, because people are afraid of teenagers, I know, but why? Um, they're they're great. I love teenagers. I love teenagers, <laughs> but people are really afraid of teenagers. And I think usually it's people who did not enjoy being a teen themselves. <laughs> they're very, you know, they get scared that they're going to get embarrassed with them or whatever. So if there's a problem with the teen, usually they would come get me and they'd be like, go get Miss Regina and she'll deal with it or whatever. Um, and I was to a point where I was too wound up to be on like that or even to like my kids wanted to talk to me about what they were seeing in the news they wanted to talk about and that's what I do as a youth librarian as a teen librarian my job is to give them voice give them resources for addressing what they're seeing socially because they don't have any other place to do that and I couldn't do it I could not talk about the election because I was literally unable I could not talk. Um, I couldn't drive my car. I was afraid to drive. I've been driving for all my life. I've been driving since I was like 14. And when it came to getting on the expressway, because my family lives on the south side. So to go from the south side to the west side, I would just be like, let me just, I'll leave my car with my mom and I'll just, I'll just ride back with you kind of thing. And I realized that I was unconsolable. Like a lot of times I was completely inconsolable. I could not stop panicking and I was so frustrated because I'm like I should be stronger than this I've been through all kinds of stuff I should be stronger than this and I was giving myself a really hard time about not just snapping out of it because at that point he was almost one and I realized that my nerves had been so bad like I had a work um, conference I had a library conference that was in um, Pittsburgh and I I brought them with me because I couldn't handle going that far from the, I was just nervous. Um, and so when I finally went to see someone before she even started talking, I was already crying. And I was just, I just told her, I was like, I'm, I'm a basket case and I can't do my job and I don't know what to do. And I'm terrified all the time. And she was like, well, first of all, you're not a basket case. <laughs> And second of all, that is, yeah, yeah. And that, that meant the world right there. Um, And she was like, you know, there's a lot that you've had to deal with in those years of infertility that you are still healing from. And also, you know, from talking to her, we kind of examined how infertility gives you this sense of the shoe just keeps dropping. Uh The shoe drops all the time. You get good news and you get bad news. You get moving forward and then you have to stop you 
get a clinic and then you, you like with me i had a clinic then my insurance i couldn't go back to that clinic or you you know you get a positive test and then you have a loss like there's all these things where it's just mm-hmm. something bad's going to happen something bad's going to happen and so when you take all of that and combine it with the hormones of pregnancy and combine it with what people's normal levels of <laughs> their propensity towards postpartum is it's multiplied a trillion because you've been through a trauma. And I don't think I'd ever heard anyone um, talk about infertility in that way before. And that really caused me to start looking up and research, I mean, librarian. So I started researching more and that's when I really started to realize infertility should be considered traumatic. Like this is a lot. And me getting that help helped me be a better mom because I was so not myself, he wasn't getting the benefit of me. And I wasn't really getting the benefit of him because I was just kind of getting through it Mm -hmm. and trying to be perfect mom and trying to not, you know, fail rather than just like enjoying the fact that he was here. (laughs) I just, I didn't want to fail. I didn't want to mess up. And I felt like I was failing all the time. I'm failing all the time. We were late for the appointment. Oh gosh. Mm-hmm. His room isn't perfectly clean. Oh God. And everything was <laughs> yeah. ridiculously, stupidly dramatic. Mm-hmm. And I, I was fed up with myself about it. Um, but I, it was helpful to have someone to tell me that I didn't need to be so angry with myself. My body was having a natural reaction to years of trauma and that I deserved support through it. And I, I, I want more people to know that, that not to be afraid, Cause you might sail through, you might be cool. Right. <laughs> but if you're not, it doesn't mean you're a horrible person. It doesn't mean you're a terrible parent. It just means you're having a natural mental health is health. <laughs> right. You're having a natural response to a traumatic event. Yeah. 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 It yeah. reminds me of, um, I think one of the most common, I'm sure you'll be able to relate to relate to this, but before you've ever seen a positive pregnancy test, you think when I get a positive pregnancy test, I'll feel better. Yeah. And then you think, okay, the first time I go to the doctor, I'll feel better. This feeling's going to go away. This anxiety okay. that I have is going to go away because it's so powerful, that anxious Heavy. feeling. And then you go, you know, when I get to 24 weeks, I'll feel better. When the baby is born, I'll feel better. The feeling never goes away <laughs> when it's like unaddressed trauma. Yeah, you know, it doesn't, go. it doesn't go away. So when you, if you're in that position, you're telling yourself, if I can get to X milestone, I'm going to feel better. Go to, like Regina said, go sit on someone's couch. Go sit on somebody's <laughs> couch. The, the best thing about it that I, t- I try to tell my family, cause I harass them about going to, I'd be like, go sit on somebody's couch. <laughs> talking to me. Um, it is a therapist is someone who is paid to listen to you (laughs) and you don't have to listen to what's going on with them at all. (laughs) Isn't that exciting? Like they're going to listen to you and not go, Oh girl, me too. No, they don't get to do that. They're not going to do that. They're just going to listen to you. Don't you want that? Like I try to sell my family. Like, (laughs) don't you want somebody who's just going to listen and not tell you what they ate for lunch at all? (laughs) Go get that for yourself. You deserve that. And they can see the signs of, uh, 
you know, if there's something more serious at play, you know, that's what you pay them for. So, (laughs) and they're trained. They're trained. Yeah. Your best friend ain't trained unless she happens to be a therapist. But your best friend ain't trained. Your auntie ain't trained. (laughs) Your your best favorite cousin that you used to play with at grandma's house is not trained. They're not trained. Right. They're, they're and they sometimes they know you so well that they may not pick up on something that mm-hmm. someone who doesn't know you as intimately will. Right. Go sit on somebody's couch. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I preach into the choir right here. Yeah. Like I've been sitting on couches for years. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Regina, thank you so much for joining me this evening this was was so so fun fun. and being willing you know to share your time and your energy and your wisdom with our listeners i truly appreciate it so much can you tell everyone where they can find you sure so you can visit the brokenbrownegg.org or on instagram it's just broken brown egg i'm also on facebook at the broken brown egg and um you can send me a note you can send me a dm um and I'm happy to help wherever I can. I try to connect people as much as I can. So if you're looking for resources, I keep that on my site. Um, and representation is my goal. So I try to make sure that I'm finding um, organizations founded by or catering specifically to Black people. But I also just keep my ear to the ground to everybody. So if you're thinking, well, that doesn't really pertain to me, send me a message anyway. You never know who I might know right. that I can help you find. Yeah. Oh, thank you again so much. This has been so fun. Let's talk again thank soon. You. Again, when the pandemic, when it's safe, we got <laughs> we got to come do this in person. When we're free from this. When we're free from when we're free from <laughs> the when Zoom live lets us play. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that was a great interview, Kayla. Thanks cool. for coming on, Regina. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Regina. I had a blast talking to her. And um, I learned a lot. So thank you so much. And um, as always, guys, um, thanks for listening. Make sure you um, subscribe if you haven't already. Give us a rating, a review. We would love that. Um, You can follow us on Instagram at Infertile Mafia Podcast. And uh, you can email us at infertilemafia at gmail.com. Oh, and, and Facebook groups? Should we? Yeah, let's not <laughs> say the Facebook groups. We have Facebook groups. They're there if you want them. <laughs> and as always, guys, thanks for joining the Infertile Mafia. Bye. Bye. Bye.